Hey, it's Jack. Mark is in San Francisco attending the 2024 JP Morgan Healthcare Conference, so I'm pinch hitting as host this week. Don't worry, we'll hear from Mark later on the show about the annual powwow of healthcare's movers and shakers. In the meantime, we're going to focus on generative AI in healthcare. It's no secret that over the past year, there has been a frothing interest and investment made by the industry in these innovations. Leaders of all kinds of healthcare organizations want to leverage AI and its ever-evolving technological capabilities for the benefit of the patients they serve in one way or another. Following the mainstreaming of ChatGPT at the end of 2022, generative AI was the talk of the town in 2023. As we start 2024, the question on everybody's lips is, where does generative AI go from here to level up from fad curiosity to practical healthcare tool? Our guest this week is Michelle Chen, president of Insilico Medicine, who details the company's ongoing work to bring generative AI's capabilities to the world of clinical research, and she also provides an update on their collaboration with Sanofi. And Lesh is here with a health policy update. Hey, Jack. Today, I'll talk about the Food and Drug Administration's historic move to give Florida the ability to import medications from Canada at much lower prices than in the U.S., And Jack, what do we have on the healthcare social media front? Well, Jack, this week we're talking about Eli Lilly's website, Lilly Direct, which allows patients to get a weight loss drug prescription through a telehealth provider. We have the latest update on Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin's prostate cancer treatment, as well as a roundup of brands and influencers toasting to dry January. I'm Mark Iskowitz, Editor-at-Large, and welcome to the MMM Podcast, medical marketing media's show about healthcare marketing writ large. Michelle, it's a pleasure to have you on the show here. Want to get to a lot of different topics that are going on at in Silico. Wanted to really start off with one that I think has been kind of a major topic of conversation, certainly your company, but in the broader industry, which is the use of AI, generative AI uh, in the life sciences and pharma realm. Can you talk to me a little bit about what your company has been doing on that front? There's been a lot of exciting developments over the year. Thank you, Jack. Thanks for the opportunity. Um, so, Insilico Medicine is a leader in generative AI-led drug discovery and development company. We are also a clinical stage company. Currently, we have five drug candidates in clinical development. Overall, our pipeline contains about 31 programs against uh, 29 targets total, spread disease areas such as oncology, fibrosis, inflammation, and other areas. Um, so we have uh, created this pharma AI platform, which it consists of three big pillars, biology 42, chemistry 42, and uh, medicine 42. Um, those can help us to address key bottlenecks we're seeing drug discovery development, including novel target discovery, biomarker discovery analysis for translational medicine, de novel small molecule drug design using generative AI, last but not least, um, way to predict clinical trial success, which can help us in turn improve the clinical trial design and also help with the investment as well as business development decisions. So we're forefront in creating this very exciting uh, field called AI-driven drug discovery and development, also known as AIDD, and how be part of a great ecosystem. I appreciate you giving the background there, and I kind of want to drill into that because obviously we saw at the tail end of 2022 and certainly throughout 2023, you know, the public interest take off in terms of chat GPT and generative AI, and obviously pharma, like any other industry, 
uh, kind of leaned into that, whether that was on the pharma and life sciences side or we saw in the medical marketing space as well. But you guys have been doing this for a number of years. What, from your perspective, has really intrigued you in terms of seeing kind of this this mainstream popularity that um, generative AI has really enjoyed over the past year or so? Yeah, yeah, I, 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 you're right, spot on, Jack. There's just two movements. Right, there's a generative AI excitement. There's also large language a model building, the chat GPT, right? Um, we are certainly uh, a forefront experimenting both for drug discovery development. Our Chemistry 42 platform is built on generative AI. In fact, we're the first one uh, to publish in our industry to utilize generative AI for small molecule drug design. And that eventually led to a paper in Nature Biotechnology, I believe. It took us a very uh, a small of time to be able to come up with this I would say fairly potent um, small molecule drugs and uh, to prove that has both in vitro as well in vivo efficacy in animal models. On the large language building model, right, uh, recently we have incorporated chat function like ChatGPT into our AI tools such as Pandomics uh, as well as Chemistry 42. And that will allow uh, users to chat with a system such as Pandomics for example, what will be exciting targets to go after for psoriasis? You can type in those type of questions and interact with the system directly. And within seconds, the system will uh, think, you know, <laughs> because seconds come up with a bit of answers that highlights some of the uh, most discovery and uh, uh, targets that they think might be relevant. We even did side-by-side -side comparison that chat panda GPT, the version that we have, which apply large language model on our own knowledge graph on pandemics versus the general chat GPT utilize information come from overall internet. And it turns out the answer we came up are much more relevant in, for a disease field uh, versus the generic internet search, so uh, chat GPT. So this also gave our confidence as our user confidence and that you can uh, make drug discovery, target discovery, much more intuitive. And that's just an example of that. We uh, plan to do more like this, find other AI tools so that um, more people are start using this and to work on the field that we think is very exciting but extremely inefficient. And obviously, it's it's been a boon for your organization in terms of being able to have these discoveries come through. I know last year you had uh, inked the deal with uh, Sanofi, uh, for the AI platform, Pharma AI. Uh, can you talk about that deal and maybe how that's progressed since you signed that deal? Obviously, Sanofi putting a large amount of money behind the prospects that you and your organization have in AI. Very uh, exciting there, but what has that been like? Yeah, excellent question. So, Sanofi, uh, as a global top pharma company, right, they are, are a strong believer in digital health as well as digital transformation. And if you listen to their CEO's talk and senior management discussion at various public uh, forums, and you can tell as a company, they're very much committed to AI-enabled drug discovery. And we are one of the key leaders in this space. So, um, you know, hopefully one plus uh, equal, you know, uh, two square, right, in that, in that sense. Um, so. The agreement we signed is obviously our major uh, uh, collaboration with the global pharma company. Uh, under those kind of agreement, they'll pay us upfront payment. 
is $21.5 million upfront. And this is public information. And that allowed them to leverage our end-to-end pharma AI platform and also gain access to a team of uh, interdisciplinary trained drug discovery scientists. Um, we will help them identify, synthesize, and advance those uh, drug candidates um, in current way, in current agreement, we're looking at about six targets, right? On top of the initial upfront payment, there'll be additional payments um, may follow uh, for the potential research development, regulatory, and sales milestone uh, for more than $1.2 billion, right? And on top of that, there will be um, up to double-digit tier-based royalties should drugs become, you know, um, successful on the market. So this is truly exciting, transforming deal for in Silicon Medicine and help us to really move out of value chain. And as you can imagine, in early on in Silicon Medicine formation, we were just a very small, you know, early stage startup company focused on software development. Over time, we started doing building our pipeline and develop capability uh, to utilize our AI, start doing drug discovery development. And this deal really help us to simplify the, simplify the, uh, the, the move out the value chain and also our business model, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I kind of wanted to add a follow-up question there too, in terms of the work that you've done with Microsoft BioGPT. If you explain that for our audience too, because I'm sure they're really familiar with the Sanofi deal, but that one was something in my research for this conversation that really stuck out to me in terms of using that for, uh, I believe it was for aging and disease, if I'm correct, right? Yeah, we have been uh, aging and and disease uh, for quite a long time. Our our founder, CEO, Alex Zavarnock, is passionate about the health span. How can we live a long life and well healthy, right? And now being sick for the last, say, uh, 20, 30 years, and would not, which would not be fun. Um, so we have incorporated a lot of a, a large language of a model in our pharma AI tools, software tools, in collaboration with Microsoft or even Amazon, those kind of a technology, NVIDIA is another big tech collaborators we have working with him for the years. We really want to enhance our technology platform, make sure this robust and also up to date to the most recent technologies. Um, and that will certainly help us to stay being the forefront of this um, very exciting and also extremely competitive field. Absolutely. And and while we're, we've been talking a little bit about the generative AI space and everything that's going on there, I kind of wanted to pivot the conversation a bit to ExAlexis, if you can inform our audience about that deal that you struck with them uh, back in the fall of 2023 and what that entails for your organization going forward. Yeah. Excellent question, Jack. Um, the deal with ExAlexis deal is our first asset out-licensing deal for in Silicon Medicine. And it was announced in September this year, so relatively fresh. Um, what, as part of that deal, what Axelexis got from us is a global license to a very exciting, we consider to be best-in-class small molecule against uh, USP1. USP1, for those of you who may now be expert in the field, is has emerged as a very uh, promising synthetic lethal target um, for, for oncology. Um, basically, synthetic lethality means that if you knock out the one uh, target, one gene, the cells are still okay, but the combination will knock out both A plus B that could be lethal for the, uh, for the tumor cells. 
So imagine going after USP1 in the black mutant tumor status, we'll expect to see a tumor killing, at least demonstrated in our in vivo animal models. So this deal is very exciting for us. You know, as you know, we, we are um, in many ways acting like biotech companies. So we have a rich pipeline, and this is the first deal. Uh, and simplifies the business model is working. As part of the deal, XLexis will have a global rights and exclusive rights access to the compound. And uh, what public has announced that they will pay us uh, $80 million upfront, followed by significant um, milestone payments cover the development, regulatory, commercial, as well as uh, tiered royalty in the net sales. Um, and currently, the program's in phase one in development, and the teams are working very, very close together on trying to um, deliver this very promising drug candidates and two patients. Hopefully, we can make a, a you know, meaningful impact in those patients' lives. It's, it's very exciting, certainly, for Exalexis and for Insilico. And I'm curious, because you mentioned that's the first asset deal the company has made, if that's something that maybe you're looking to lean more into, whether it's in 24 or in the years to come. Absolutely, spot on. <laughs> we are uh, looking for additional um, partners uh, in assets licensing side. In fact, I said there are 31 programs in our pipeline. Majority of them will want to find a home for them because in silico medicine strength is really in the discovery side, right? Discovery early stage molecules and with the power for help of the AI. And very much, we can take all the programs all the way to IND approval, but uh, it would be great if we can work with um, um, uh, more mature biopharma companies or global pharma company to help us with the clinical development and regulatory approval and ultimately the commercial uh, uh, development um, and uh, selling of those drugs truly become very successful. Um, so we expect to see more um, asset license deal to happen in the coming months and years. And this is also a good point to reflect on our business model, right? Our business model has three key components. One is the more like biotech business model, finding a licensing partner where they can take over on the development as well as the commercial. So that's the asset licensing piece. The second piece is, uh, Jack, the example you just alluded, our deal with Sanofi, we call the strategic partnership piece, where we became uh, become their external R&D using our tools, expertise, to create early stage drug candidates for their pipeline. The third model we, was called the AI software licensing. We do have some tools for AIs uh, could be available, uh, such as Pandemics, Chemistry 42, and in clinical. And people can just go ahead and license those software, just like uh, Microsoft 365. And they can play with it, you know, play with it in their own sandbox and create their own pipeline. We, the reason we offer all those three business models of three business scenarios for potential partnership is really maximize the in impact uh, we have in the field, but also create a community ecosystem because ultimately we want to make sure and AI is not just for silico medicine, but the whole community for the field to use. It's interesting to hear that from a business operation standpoint, but then also talking about you know what your end goal is too. It's not just for your own company's benefit, but really for the industry, kind of a uh, high tide raises all boats sort of approach, if you will. I, I had one more question for you, Michelle, because I really appreciate you being on the show and obviously detailing something that's been of 
a real keen interest to our audience as it relates to generative AI and advances in its space. But I know that you had recent news as well with a first in human study for an IBD uh, treatment. If you could walk us through that too, I think that'd be interesting for our audience. Yeah, the 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 IBD currently drug we uh, have developed have AI uh, first in class uh, novel small molecule drug against PhD one and two, and uh, what exciting thing about this molecule is that um, it has a dual mechanism reaction, and on one hand it has anti-inflammatory uh, effect. Uh, for the bowel. I mean, as you imagine by this name, IBD stands for inflammatory bowel disease. That's in the, there's a lot of inflammation going on in the gut, right? So it has the anti-inflammatory effect, like many other standard for uh, care drugs will have. On the other hand, it has a novel mechanism action that is also involved gut repairing. Okay, so uh, we are testing this molecule currently in healthy volunteers, but ultimately we're interested in testing the molecule on its own and to uh, to test the mechanism action in the uh, in human to uh, and, and compare the data we have generated in, in the animal models. And uh, this is a program we're very excited and I think they offer potential uh, a novel approach to uh, treat IBD patients. And uh, it may have the potential to be combined with other uh, standard of care too. And in this program, we're also very active looking for our partnership uh, who can help us continue to drive the development uh, further down the road. Well, I know it's something that we'll definitely be paying attention to. It sounds very promising in that sort of realm. Obviously, there's been a lot of interest and investment in the IBD space in the past year or so, so something to keep an eye on. But Michelle, really appreciate you again being able to offer these insights on something that's been so top of mind, not only for our audience, but for the uh, broader general public as well. And certainly wish you and Insilico the best going forward with these partnerships and different developments you have going on. Great. Thank you. Thanks, Jack, and for the opportunity. Hey, it's Mark, coming to you with my recap of day one highlights from the J.P. Morgan Healthcare Conference in San Francisco. I'm recording this at the tail end of an artificially extended day. I flew out here from New York this morning and didn't get to the conference until 3 p.m. or so. But that was just in time to see the standing room crowd gather to watch Pfizer CEO Albert Borla's fireside chat, followed by company presentations by Moderna and Merck. And those three, as it turns out, shared a common theme, which I'll call renewal, or in Pfizer's case, turning the page after a bad year. After grossly overestimating its COVID product revenue, Pfizer was forced to cut its revenue guidance twice last year. But Borla didn't mince words. He acknowledged that the firm missed internal projections and street expectations, and also didn't impress very much with the commercial performance of the rest of its products. The pharma company's fall from grace was all the more painful, he said, considering, and I quote, we used to be the stars of the industry for a few years. To hear the CEO acknowledge that hurt was kind of stunning. Meanwhile, fellow coronavirus shot maker Moderna was intent on moving past the pandemic too. CFO Jamie Mock spent much of his time arguing that Moderna is an mRNA platform company with capacity far beyond COVID. The firm, he said, expects to incur losses over the next two years, but it's made good progress in diversifying the late-stage pipeline. Merck's CEO Rob Davis also spoke of shedding an older image from Keytruda and Gardasil to new product launches in what he called one of the broadest, deepest pipelines we've had in years. Management voiced strong enthusiasm for the upcoming launches of Cetatercept and PAH, as well as V116, a vaccine for pneumococcal disease. The company also upgraded long-term guidance for its oncology and cardiometabolic franchises. As MMM reported this morning, the conference kicked off with a flurry of deals, including another one in a long string of collaborations that see pharma venturing into the hot antibody drug conjugate space for cancer. 
So despite the deal-making downturn last year, it seems as though blue-chip companies have gone shopping once more, buying or partnering with those mid-market companies and carrying December's flurry of deals into the new year, which is good news for those in the M&A space. Thanks for listening. Be sure to check MMM-online for my day one recap, as well as more dispatches to come from JPM. Health Policy Update with Lesha Bouchak. Last week, the FDA made a historic move toward drug pricing reform by approving Florida's ability to import low-cost medications from Canada. Florida will become the first state to buy drugs in bulk for its Medicaid program from Canada, and it may save up to $150 million just in the first year of the initiative. Because Canada, like many other countries, can negotiate directly with drug makers to set a lower cost for medications, prescription drugs are cheaper there as a whole. The pharma industry immediately expressed opposition to the move, with lobbying group Pharma noting in a statement that the FDA's decision was, quote, reckless, and that, quote, the importation of unimproved medicines, whether from Canada or elsewhere in the world, poses a serious danger to public health. Several more states have applied to the FDA to be able to import Canadian medication themselves, however. FDA Commissioner Dr. Robert Califf said the agency would be heavily vetting those applications to make sure they, quote, demonstrate the programs would result in significant cost savings to consumers without adding risk of exposure to unsafe or ineffective drugs. While the move is a significant one, some health policy experts expressed concern that allowing Canadian drug imports wouldn't necessarily address the root cause of the high drug prices in the U.S., the lack of a federal program that would directly negotiate the cost of most drugs, a system that's in place in many other countries. Plus, plenty of hurdles remain, especially as drug makers seek to prevent Canadian drugs from making it across the border and sign agreements with wholesalers to prevent exports. Canadian drugs that are in short supply may also be limited. In the last year, the Biden administration has touted several of its efforts to put drug pricing policy in place to lower costs, including implementing the start of Medicare negotiations, and introducing new guidelines for the use of margin rights, all in preparation for the election year. I'm Lesha Bouchak, senior reporter at MMM. Trending. We're going to take it down to a little place called Healthcare Trends, starting off with Eli Lilly's new website, Lilly Direct. The website will allow patients to get a weight loss prescription through a telehealth provider, a move the pharma giant hopes will improve access to its obesity drug, ZepBound. Listeners may recall that in early November, the Food and Drug Administration greenlit Lilly's terzepatide for treating obesity. Originally known as Mongero when it was treating type 2 diabetes, Zepbound represents an expected but major step forward for the American drug maker as it competes with Danish drug maker Novo Nordisk in the increasingly lucrative GLP-1 drug space. With regulatory approval for an expanded indication, Lilly is augmenting its operations and marketing going forward, and Lilly Direct is a prime example of that. It also comes as weight loss companies like Weight Watchers and Roe have recently rolled out digital programs to receive GLP-1 treatments. A couple days after the direct-to-consumer initiative was launched, Lilly CEO David Ricks said ZepBound had reached 25,000 new prescriptions per week by the end of December. He added that demand may lead to shortages in 2024, but that the company was, quote, working hard to fulfill that demand. And I know, Lesha, that we have been talking for 
weeks and months, and we will continue to talk for weeks and months about the future of weight loss drugs. But to see a drug manufacturer like Eli Lilly take a direct-to-consumer approach with Lilly Direct, I have to think that Novo is probably going to do that you know, at some point in the future. And these other drug makers that are jumping into the space kind of have a playbook written out for them. Yeah. I mean, I think uh, to your point, this is a trend that will probably see grow further this year. And as you mentioned at the end, um, you know, there's such high demand for these drugs. Uh, We will also simultaneously probably continue to see shortages and issues with supply. Um, I know uh, Novo Nordisk has had issues with shortages in 2023. um, So we'll probably expect to see that continue as well. But I think um, there's also kind of this kind of points to a larger push in the healthcare industry as a whole, where a lot of other companies I think are trying to get involved in this GLP-1 space, even if they're not manufacturers of these drugs, but they're trying to design programs that say we can help, you know, with your weight loss income that's complementary to you being on these GLP-1 drugs. And I think it's just kind of going to be like an industry-wide push in this direction where weight loss is going to be very much based around GLP-1s. And then all of the complementary things you can do in addition to your GLP-1 Uh, regimen, um, whether that's like mental health support or exercise, diet, things like that. I think um, we're going to see an increased push in that direction in the industry as a whole. And it is interesting, too. You talk about kind of like healthcare organizations of all different types meeting consumers where they are. I think that there was this brick and mortar idea of healthcare before the pandemic of you have to go to your doctor, you have to go to the hospital or X, Y, and Z to get care. Now, a lot of these organizations are like, you know, we're going to meet you, whether it's on your laptop, on your phone, whatever. Like if you're interested in having a, in getting a GLP-1 prescription, and that is in addition to what you talk about with diet or exercise, they now have a way that you can do that instead of like, oh, I have to make an appointment to go to the doctor or right. I have to get in touch or whatever. It does make it easier. Right. I imagine Lily Direct, one of its goals is kind of to make sure everything is in one place so that it is easier for um, patients and more convenient for patients to be able to access those drugs and any other kind of additional care they need in relation to that. I wonder how much of this is a response to some of the counterfeit stuff that we've seen in recent weeks where we've seen like these drug makers suing spas and clinics that have knockoff brands or, you know, things that are a danger to consumers to your point about trying to centralize. It's like, you know, you can come here and you know that you are getting the exact product that you are after instead of going to some black market or third party that could endanger you. Right. I think um, the high drug or the high costs of some of these drugs is what's been driving a lot of people to seek these like kind of... um, unapproved alternatives, these sketchy alternatives. Um, And I think to your point, this probably is, you know, partially a response to that because it's looking to make, I believe there's a a comment in here about um, helping patients save money on on some of these drugs um, through Lily Direct and just making it a lot more convenient, a lot more accessible um, with the promise of helping out a little bit with some savings. trying to kind of uh, draw people more towards Eli Lilly compared to these other sketchy alternatives that will continue to, to pop up as the demand remains high, I think. Oh, yeah. You can never get rid of the black market entirely. But to your point about the cost aspect, they also know that they have Bernie Sanders and the HELP committee looming over them for when it comes to diabetes care. So definitely something that'll be interesting to follow going forward. One thing that we have been following over the past couple of days that we actually just got updates about before we stepped in the studio is the health status of Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin. The reporting before this statement was put out was that Austin had been in the hospital since New Year's Day and that the White House didn't know until a few days ago. Officials released a statement saying that a routine health screening that Austin underwent in early December detected prostate cancer. 
He then had an elective procedure on December 22nd, went home a day later and was admitted to the ICU at Walter Reed via ambulance on January 1st when he began experiencing severe abdominal pain. The official statement said that was due to a urinary tract infection. Last Friday, the Pentagon announced that he had been in the hospital since New Year's Day, which caught the agency's press corps, national security establishment, and the White House off guard. Austin is still recovering and receiving care, and officials have said that since his cancer was detected early, his prognosis is excellent. I think it's important to note that Austin is 70 years old, so obviously something that factors into all of this. What the path forward from here looks like remains unclear. On Monday, Austin's chief of staff ordered a 30-day investigation into the events surrounding his hospitalization. And earlier this week, Politico reported that President Joe Biden is not considering firing Austin. And one administration official noted that the president would not accept a resignation if Austin were to offer one. Still, reports emerged just before we went into the studio that Biden's chief of staff, Jeff Zients, sent out a policy review to cabinet members. So, Things are clearly heating up on that front, and obviously it's not our place to speculate on the political nature of all of this. I know there's been a lot of calls from members of Congress for him to resign or a further investigation to basically how all of this happened. And again, that is not what we are here for on this podcast. As it relates to the health status of all of this, it is one a reminder to always get screened for things like prostate cancer. Preventative screenings can lead to instances like this where something is caught, something is treated, and then you have what they describe as a, an excellent diagnosis or a prognosis, I guess you could say. There is also the question, too, of whether or not, and they say it in the statement that he was never um, under general, general anesthesia and that he was never unconscious. That has been some debate in media reports about whether he transferred power, whether the White House didn't know about his status. That is all up in the air. So politics aside, Lesha, I want to bring you into the conversation and just what you make of all this. It's really been a, a number of back and forth over the past couple of days. Yeah, I'll touch on the political implications in a second, but I want to just draw everyone's attention to the, the statement that was literally just released about a half hour ago from Walter Reed National Military Medical Center officials on Austin's condition. Because as you said, there was a lot of murkiness around, is he in the ICU? Is he unconscious? Like, what's going on? And in the statement, they said that um, he had a urinary, urinary tract infection and then on January 2nd, the decision was made to transfer him to the ICU for close monitoring and a higher level of care. Further evaluation revealed abdominal fluid collections, impairing the function of his small intestines. This resulted in the backup of his intestinal contents, which was treated by placing a tube through his nose to drain his stomach. Um, he has, which just sounds, just to interrupt you for a second, just sounds awful. Yeah. Um, he has progressed steadily throughout his stay. His infection has cleared. He continues to make progress and we anticipate a full recovery, although this can be a slow process. And then I also thought it was interesting that in the statement, they also kind of put in paragraph of uh, prostate cancer awareness saying it's the most common cause of cancer among American men. It impacts one in every man and one in every six African-American men during their lifetime um, and kind of urged people to uh, do early screening, as you mentioned. Um, so those are the most details that we have right now um, based on that statement that just came out. So it appears it's still a bit unclear what the uh, the issue is, but uh, it appears he must still be in the ICU. Hopefully he's he's on the road to recovery. But in terms of uh, the, the political implications of this already kind of 
created a huge splash today. Republicans are clamoring, using this to kind of question Biden's competence when it comes to national security as a whole and foreign policy as a whole. They've been asking questions like, well, you know, what happens with all these serious foreign wars that have, that are happening right now if your um, secretary of defense is in the ICU and, and not reachable? And I think it's important to note that, you know, we're obviously leading up to the elections this year, and this is probably going to be brought up in some of the talking points in the election. Um, so kind of interesting that what started out as an elective medical procedure has grown into something that will be a huge splash in the election sphere. And it does kind of remind me a, a little bit of 2016 in the sense where Hillary's health status was always brought up. I remember the month before, month or two before the election when she had pneumonia and she had uh, fainted or had was unwell when she went to the 9-11 Memorial in New York. That became a, a major talking point. And to your point, it's not only about uh, Secretary Austin, which obviously, again, we're wishing him nothing but the best going forward. It does speak to a, a question of judgment, which I think both Republicans and I even think some Democrats are going to make an issue about going forward. We are also looking at a general election where the two top candidates are both going to be over the age of 77 by the time that they get on the ballot in November. And one of them is going to be over the age of 80. And health has obviously been a concern for many years uh, with uh, an aging population, the silver tsunami, all that sort of stuff that you talk about. This is only going to add to it, where again, you talk about an elective procedure, something that I think a lot of people are consider routine has turned into a month long plus debacle that has rattled Washington, D.C. Yeah. I mean, I think the in the political arena, health issues and even small medical uh, procedures are often seen as like a sign of weakness and they're kind of used against candidates in different ways. I mean, President Biden's like mental capacity and uh, questions about dementia or things like that have often been brought up to attack him. Um, people have done the same for Trump and sort of his aging uh, trajectory and his diet, for example, uh -huh. and his health has been brought into question multiple times. Um, so it's interesting to see health kind of used as like a tool, uh, a campaign tool in a way um, to attack uh, different candidates. We'll be watching these um, older candidates campaigning this year and we'll see how, how health plays a role in that. And just to put a bow on it, because you talk about it being used as almost kind of like a, a stigmatization aspect for being able to smear one side or the other as it relates to this, I will be interested to see, and I'm sure that our inboxes are going to get filled up within the next few days, as I imagine other health reporters will be too, with prostate cancer awareness organizations saying like, hey, this is a renewed focus on, like you said, a very common form of cancer in the United States, especially for men. I'll be interested to see if there's more campaigns or initiatives or, or work that comes out of that that could mm -hmm. be a silver lining in all of this. Again, glad right. that he obviously has a good prognosis. But if there are going to be organizations saying like, hey, this is renewed attention, we need more research, funding and all that sort of stuff. So right. definitely something to keep an eye on going forward. I want to throw it over to you for our third segment, kind of leaving on a happier note here. We are in dry January and you went through a roundup of the brands and influencers that are celebrating. As New Year's resolutions take off, a significant chunk of Americans will attempt to either cut down their alcohol intake or stop drinking entirely. It's commonly known as dry January. And some people use the first month of the year to participate in a trend of avoiding alcohol consumption. And influencers and brands across social media are all talking about it. 
It's important to note uh, that the trend is meant for social or moderate drinkers, but not necessarily people who have alcohol use disorder or alcohol addiction, as going cold turkey without medical assistance in those situations can be dangerous. But Dry January advocates point to some of the key benefits that come with abstaining from alcohol for a month, and those include improved sleep, energy, focus, and skin health. Additionally, over time, some people experience fewer symptoms of depression and anxiety. Psychiatrist Daniel Ammon, who has 2.5 million followers on TikTok, has discussed the negative impact of alcohol on mental health as a reason to give dry January a try. Dry January for many of you, I'm so proud of you, alcohol is of no benefit to you. It's lies to you. It gives you a short term benefit where you forget your problems and then they come back. So rather than dealing with them, you drug them. Uh, people watch my channel know how I feel about alcohol. As a psychiatrist, it's responsible for a very high percentage of the reasons people come to see me. Still, for people who may not want to go entirely alcohol-free, fear not, there are other trends that might fit better with their New Year's goals. One recent TikTok trend, the one week no booze method, involves abstaining from alcohol for one week at a time to cut down on weekly drinks. And then there's another one cheekily called Damp January, which involves reducing your overall alcohol intake to a much healthier amount as opposed to cutting it out entirely. Damp January offers a more balanced approach to people who still like to imbibe every so often, such as during social occasions. Advocates say it gives them some more leeway to have a couple drinks here and there, especially at inevitable events like birthdays or celebrations. Now, I've never done dry January. I have some friends who have, um, you know, I haven't asked them what the results were, but, um, you know, as someone who drinks way less now than I did in my early 20s, I can say that I do think some of these health benefits that people are listing are real, um, you know. Alcohol is inflammatory. Alcohol has a lot of um, negative impacts on sleep quality and things like that. Um, and so I think that overall, it's like a positive trend to see uh, going around on TikTok. Absolutely. And, you know, I, you're talking to somebody whose last name is O'Brien. So I'm, I'm familiar <laughs> with the, the effects of, of alcohol and I've been known to have a drink or two. I've never done dry January. I do know people, uh, whether in my own life or we have some coworkers around here that have either done dry January or sober October. I think it's always interesting anytime that you can make like a month long event out of it. And to your point, you know, there's even as somebody that does like to have a drink every now and then, you know, alcohol doesn't always have positives to it. It is, it is um, you know, going to have an impact on your body in a negative way. And it's always interesting to hear people talk about it, whether or not they stick with it long term. I always think it's interesting when some people are like, you know, I, I'm off the sauce and I'm not going back to it. But even for other people where it's like, oh, I didn't drink it for a couple of weeks and my sleep improved or my skin cleared up or whatever, you know, those are things that, yeah, once you remove that from the equation and you're more hydrated, you're more rested, all that sort of stuff, it, it has to make a, a positive impact, I imagine. So always interesting to see these brands kind of step out there. You had highlighted the uh, the chief medical correspondent for uh, Good Morning America. I always love a pun when it's dry January, kind mm -hmm. of making it her own thing too. So yeah, it'll be, uh, it'll be fun to kind of see how this takes off. And I know that there's always different ones. Like I said, I know Sober October is there. People pick their different times of the months, uh, times to do that. So if it's not dry January, I know a lot of people try and do it to coincide with coming off the holidays. There's always opportunities throughout the year. 
I want to thank everyone for joining us on this week's episode of the MMM podcast and appreciate you all listening to me with a very stuffy nose pinch hitting for Mark. He'll be back next week to navigate the ship. I want you to be sure to listen to next week's episode. We'll be joined by a very special guest in studio. We'll have Robert Garrett, the CEO of Hackensack Meridian Health and the chair of the World Economic Forum Health and Healthcare Governors Community, who will be here to preview the annual gathering of political and business leaders in Davos. Take care, everyone. That's it for this week. The MMM podcast is produced by Bill Fitzpatrick, Gordon Failer, Lesha Bushak, and Jack O'Brien. Our theme music is by Sizzy M. Sohn. Rate, review, and follow every episode wherever you listen to podcasts. New episodes out every week. And be sure to check out our website, mmm-online.com, for the top news stories in pharma marketing. Mm-hmm.